G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. You are a steward, not an owner. That you own nothing. That everything you have is owned by God and has been given to you by God. Now, this might be hard for some of you to take, but here's the reality. Some of you have never given God an offering in your entire life. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. And we're about to begin the final message in our Powerhouse series. In building families and relationships that are thriving, two issues in particular can cause tension. Last time, Pastor Jeff looked at physical intimacy. And in this message called Live to Give, he uses a few different proverbs to bring this message about our attitude to money. Here's Pastor Jeff. Glad you're with us. Look, folks, I believe that the series that we're doing right now is perhaps one of the most important series that we've ever done because the verdict, as we said, week one is out. We now know that after years of research, the home really does matter. It matters for society. It matters for culture. It matters to you because you are a product to a great degree of the family life in which you were raised. You are who you are now because of mom and dad and the family and your relatives. And so we want to get this family thing right. We also now know, and we've known for some time that if we're going to address family, we've got to first address the marriage. And in marriage relationships, you cannot hide the tension that exists in the family from the children and everybody around. In fact, psychology today says this, when it comes to the relationship between their parents, no irritated eye roll goes unseen and no whispered criticism goes unheard. No matter how hard we may try to conceal problems, children are sensitive to the tensions between their parents and are directly influenced by the way their parents interact. So we've got to get this family thing right. And we talked about there are two marriage killers, two things that come in to cause conflict and tension. And I got to tell you that I've been in ministry for a lot of years now, and I don't think I've ever received as many cards and emails from guys congratulating me on last week's message. (laughs) Because we talked about how intimacy in marriage is a covenant renewal ceremony established by God to remind us of the original covenant that we made to come out of isolation and individualism and to come together as one. And it's an important aspect to the marriage. So if there are problems there, we have to solve those issues. They're important. The second marriage killer, though, everyone knows what it is. It's the idea of finance and money. Uh, Larry Burkett says that money is either the best or the worst area of communication in our marriages. 
After years as financial counselor and working with marriage counselors, I know that money and money fights are the number one cause of divorce. And he mentions a word called habitudes, which is a combination of habits and attitudes. And he says, when you have two people coming together, very seldom do they agree on habits and attitudes concerning money. And that causes great conflict. Remember, this is the number one marriage killer or source of conflict. And it usually happens in two areas. Provision, are we going to have enough to do what we want to do? Are we going to have enough to run this household, especially when the children come along? Are we going to have enough? And then the other is debt. How are we going to pay for all these things that we owe? And unfortunately, the way society set up today in the West, you have enormous debt usually before you even get married. You inherit debt from each other, whether it's school, property, whatever it is. Now, in order to deal with this appropriately, we have to first admit the problem that most of us have, and I say most of us. Did you hear me say that? When I mean most, I mean you, me, all of us, because we grow up in Western society. So don't put me up on a pedestal as your example. I'm saying that we are all tempted by this, that we are tyrannized by money and stuff in the West. Proverbs 21 in the Old Testament tells us, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. So even the Bible in the Old Testament says there are two kinds of people, the one who saves and invests, the other who spends whatever he or she gets. And when you live in this culture where it's so easily easy to spend, to think that you can click a button and Amazon will deliver it right to your house. Everything is so much easier now, and that kind of spending is fun. Let's be honest. And it's all fun until what? Credit card bills show up, and the bill collectors knock at the door, and the repo man shows up to get your car, and then the fights begin. The worst part of that kind of attitude, though, is that when something comes up that you really do want to invest in, you can't. You can't because you're strapped. So your heart's right. God has changed your heart, but you almost feel like it's too late. I really want to do this, but you don't understand, pastor. I can't. First of all, I do understand. I know what that's like. I've been there. And there are two types of roads we can take in a message like this. We can, first of all, focus on all the things you've done wrong in the past. But I just don't think that's helpful because we've all done that. We're all culpable. We know that our issue has never been a lack of money. It's an unwillingness to change our behavior toward money. All of us have been there. Some of us are still there. And especially in the West, you have to understand how the temptation is so strong. We want all the latest gadgets. In the West, we don't distinguish between want and need. Uh, We live above our means. We spend when we should probably save. We splurge when we should probably be more conservative. It's the American way. Have everything right now. And for the most part, All of us, you, me, we, fall for the lie that our happiness is based on having whatever we want, whatever we wanted. And so mom goes out and buys designer clothes for the baby. Baby doesn't even know what designer clothes are. But she wants to put it on Facebook so everybody see her baby's important. And then dad goes out and buys cars that he really can't afford. Why? To prove to the world that he matters and he's made it and he's a step above everybody else. You know, there's a real freedom in not having that kind of attitude. Because my cars are all paid for. My little Jetta, that thing's paid for, been paid for. I get to drive that, I call it the poor man's BMW. I love that little Jetta. I don't care what people think about me. I love that little car. And so we do things that make no sense. And then as parents, we want our kids to have the best so that when they go to school, no one looks down on them. So that we are up there with the elite. 
And the real problem is a spiritual problem. It's not a financial one. Because you have not yet learned, we have not learned, that our upward mobility is based on God, not on man. And man is fickle anyway. They're not worried about what you're wearing. They're too concerned about what they're wearing and what they're driving. So here we are, many of us in the room, we've sacrificed our future for the pleasure of the present. And we find ourselves in this situation. We could dwell the whole time on how we got here, but I think it's much more productive to ask the separate question. Now that we're here, where do we go now? And how does this solve the tension, financial tension in our marriage? Now, according to statistics, about two-thirds of you are in this tension. Two-thirds. Now, even if you're single, you, you can be in financial tension. You don't have to be married to be in financial tension. You can be in the same thing. What do we do? So I want to give you three things you have to do to get on the right path. Here's the first, all in Scripture. First, you've got to make a decision today to begin living a Christ-like life in relation to your finances. I can't determine what you've done in the past, but I can tell you this. You've got to walk out here this weekend. If you want this pressure and ball and chain to go away, you've got to decide you're going to relate to God in a way that's appropriate concerning your finances. So where your money and wealth is concerned, you either go at it with God or you go at it alone. It's your choice. But know this, this is important. God is not an enabler. He does not reward bad behavior. That's not his style. So you can't say, Lord, bless my marriage while I'm having an affair. You with me? You can't say, Lord, bless my finances while I practice stealing, while I live above my means, while I have poor investment practices, while I live as though my entire life is all about me. God, let me do this, and I expect you to bless me. God's not an enabler. So first, you got to make a decision that today, you're going to begin living a Christ-like life in relation to your finances. You say, okay, Pastor Jeff, I'm ready. What do I do? Do you know out of all the questions you ask a pastor, this is the easiest one? Do you know why? Because Jesus talked more about it than any other topic. And basically, Jesus goes on to say that this is kind of a litmus test of where your heart really is, how you relate to your wealth. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's not a difficult passage to exegete. Jesus basically says, you're going to invest in the areas that you care most about, bottom line, because whatever you care most about, that's a good test because that's where your resources are going to go. Not all of them, not all of them, but this is where your heart is. Therefore, your budget sheet will reveal it. Now, when the Bible talks about this, it says that when your heart has been transformed by the gospel, there are three attitudes that every believer has. One is this, you come to the conclusion that you are a steward, not an owner, that you own nothing, that everything you have is owned by God and has been given to you by God. Psalm 24 in the Old Testament says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So the Christ follower knows that what we have we have been given to care for, for God's glory alone. Bill Peel says, although God gives us all things richly to enjoy, nothing is ours. Nothing really belongs to us. God owns everything. We're responsible for how we treat it and what we do with it. While we complain about our rights here on earth, the Bible constantly asks, what about your responsibilities? Owners have rights, stewards have responsibilities. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, 
his already. So the reason it's so easy to answer the question is because parable after parable that Jesus tells reminds you, tries to pull you back into this one concept. You're not, you're not the owner. You're the renter. You're the tenant. Everything you have is a gift from God and it ultimately belongs to him. And one day we will stand before God and we will give back to him what is rightfully his. And the one question that will emerge is this. What kind of steward were you with God's stuff? How did you use it? You can summarize it by saying, if I'm still living like an owner, the gospel has not truly penetrated my heart. The one word that sums up Jesus' idea of your stuff is the word stewardship. Stewardship. And he tells so many parables that we could, you know, we could do a, a series on these parables. Let's just mention one because I think most of us are familiar with it. It's where Jesus says, do you want to know what the kingdom of God is really like? Do you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is really like? It's like a master who turns over to his servants, his wealth, and goes away on a journey. He gives five talents, and talents are always refer to money, folks. It's at least money. It can be more than that, but it's at least at its core money. Five talents and another two and another one. The guy who was given five doubled it. The guy who was given two doubled it. The guy who was given one hit it in the ground. And Jesus is quite harsh. I mean, he's probably more harsh here than any other text that I'm aware of because he talks about the one that hit it and did nothing with it for the sake of the kingdom of God. And in verse 30, he says, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he says, this guy's worthless. He doesn't get it. He thinks he's an owner. Throw him outside. That's pretty harsh. And whatever the secondary meanings are, the primary meaning is undeniable. And it's this, what you do with your wealth matters in eternity. What you do with what God gives you now does matter. And it also reveals your true heart. As it turns out, Jesus would say that the way you relate to your wealth is a wordless expression of your true commitment. So first, for a believer who wants to relate to God and get God involved in this area of the marriage or this area of life, number one, you realize you're a steward, not an owner. And two, you start to understand that you cannot worship God, truly worship God without sacrifice. In Malachi 3, God is complaining to a group of people who claim they love him. And God says, you, you, call, me, you call me father, but where's the respect? You give me no respect. You give me no honor, and yet you say I'm the Lord and I'm the father of your life. And they say, well, how, how have we violated that? And then he says, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame and diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, what is God saying here? You are giving me something that you don't want anyway or that doesn't have great value, as if you can discard it, as if I don't matter. And true worshipers begin to understand that part of your life, not only your money, but everything about you is sacrificial. You offer your life as a sacrifice out of gratitude, not out of merit to earn salvation, but out of gratitude for the sacrifice and generosity God has given you. When your heart's been changed, what God has done to make you his treasure, you will make him yours. So if you want to relate to God appropriately concerning your finances, first you realize you're a steward, not the owner. God owns everything. Two, you realize you can't truly give God a life of worship without sacrifice. And three, this is the important one. Well, they're all important, but they build on each other. Worship Sacrifice and stewardship 
are demonstrated in the covenant renewal ceremony of the tithe and the first fruits principle. In Proverbs 3, we're told, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now, here's the good thing about talking about this topic on this weekend. This is not a weekend we're trying to raise money. So you have to decide, is Pastor Jeff trying to manipulate me or does he really care about my marriage? See, there's no fundraiser at the end of this message. So why would Pastor Jeff be talking about this? Could it be that Pastor Jeff really does care about me and wants to get me out of this horrible situation I find myself in? See, if you don't believe that, then you're going to listen with different ears. So I'm just trying to tell you, this is simply trying to show you the way out of the bondage based on the word of God. And I'm going to give you eight steps here. I want you to write these down. Never forget them. They are eternal and unchanging. And so you can always go back to this and remind yourself. And I want you to remember, because the Bible says for the Christ follower who truly understands what it is to relate to God on the basis of grace, sacrifice, generosity, the first thing that person is going to do is they're going to give the first fruits of God. They're going to give the first fruits, what God has entrusted to them, they're going to give back to God. It's called tithing. And the first thing you need to know about tithing is tithing is a universal principle. It is not something that stopped with the Old Testament. Neither did it start with the Mosaic Code. Any Bible scholar knows that it didn't originate from the law, and it doesn't stop with the law. It is established before the law and extends far beyond the Mosaic Code. Abraham, hundreds of years before Moses was even born, brought tithes to Melchizedek, and we go right back to the original creation story in Genesis 4. Let me read it. The Bible says that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. What's the problem? It's very simple. Even in the days of creation, Abel brought the best of the best of who he was and what he had. Cain brought what was left over. And this doesn't please God. And not only does it not please God, it causes an internal tension in you because you know you're not doing the right thing. And so the Bible tells us that Cain's countenance fell, that he was depressed, and then he becomes angry, and then he kills his brother. Then we go to second. Tithing is a thermometer of spiritual vitality. So since we see it all through the Bible, Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So your money goes toward that which you value the most. Again, not rocket science. If you value the kingdom of God and Jesus' work in the world, your budget sheet is going to reveal that. That's why Jesus says it's a thermometer of spiritual vitality. It reveals your heart. Three, tithing is the starting place for New Testament giving. Okay. In both the Old and New Testaments, we see two words describing what we give to God. It is tithes and offering. Now, why is there a distinction between the two? Well, when I was growing up, the deacons would come before the church, and before we took the offering, they would always pray a prayer that said, Lord, bless these tithes and offerings. The Bible actually makes that distinction too. All the way back in Malachi, when God is complaining about the heart of his people, he says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You see, the tithe is something that God has a legal claim to. 
The first 10% of everything you have, the first fruits belongs to God. What you give on top of that is what you decide in your heart between you and God. That's called your offering. But there's a legal claim on the first 10% to show that you are willing to externally demonstrate what you say you believe internally, and that is that everything ultimately belongs to God anyway. That's why God uses the word rob. You can't rob somebody unless you're taking something from them that rightfully belongs to them. So God says, when you don't return the first fruits of your life to me, you're actually stealing from me. You're taking something that doesn't belong to you. So that's, that's, that's pretty aggressive. So tithing is a starting place for New Testament giving. Here's four. The tithe is one-tenth of your total income. That's what tithe means. The first fruits of your life. That's what the Old Testament means by tithe. The first ten. Which means five that you're offering then is this. The offering is what you give above and beyond what is required. So the tithe is what you rightfully give back to God. He's the owner of all things. Then the offering is what you give to God in appreciation and as a way of investing in something that you say matters to you. You say, some people would say, why on earth would I do that? Here's why. You're going back to the covenant of baptism. When you were baptized, you say, God, my goals are your, your goals are my goals. Your objectives are my objectives. Your passion is my passion. So knowing now that God's primary passion is to bring the kingdom of God into reality in this world, that people far from God would move near to God. That means you have new passions and you have new objectives. You still live your life, but now you've got a different goal. You're living for a kingdom beyond yourself. Therefore, you try to position yourself when your heart has been transformed in such a way to invest in the things that you know really matter. That's why the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, remember this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, in that verse, the apostle Paul is assuming that the passion of your life is to reap a great harvest. And because that is the passion of your life, you're going to position yourself where you can sow generously. Now, this might be hard for some of you to take, but here's the reality. Some of you have never given God an offering in your entire life because you've never given him a tithe. And you can't give an offering until you've given a tithe. Now, once again, I know that was a bit, well, it was clear. Look, you know, in the past, I used to apologize for these sermons. I, I, I can't do that anymore. You've got to get to a point where you, okay, why is pastor doing this? You, you have to get to that point where sooner or later we become a family where we trust each other and we're assuming we're trying to help each other. I can't do anything about that. And I said years ago that it's impossible to manipulate and coerce people in giving their money because they're never going to do it no matter what you say until the heart's transformed. So my job is to teach you what Jesus says about this. And when your heart's transformed, it'll be a natural byproduct, which is why I feel no pressure. It's not my job. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. If I want to live, I must first die. To go up, I must first go down. And our ultimate example is Jesus. To win the ultimate victory, he must suffer the ultimate defeat. And I'm telling you that when it comes to your finances, the great inversion is in play. You can listen to more messages like this 
Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.